We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a wheel. I want to know something she's on. I think about everyone you need. I hope that things are good real now. I have you seen you wanting you. Hey, it's a ratio. Okay, though. It's a ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. You're a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. Of the many great lessons that I learned from everything that happened on SportsCenter and really everything at ESPN, period, is that I will never put myself in that position again. Um... So in what? I will not enter into a situation where I can't fully be who I am. And I have, you know, like, I don't mind. I, I've I since had, you know, a couple network shows since then. But I think that there has been in network TV this expectation that you should change or you should be different. What you see is what you're going to get. And I'm not changing it. And even with the... The very short lived stint that I did uh, at, at C, CNN Plus, they understood exactly who I was coming through the door and knew that's the person I was going to be. And you either have the stomach to deal with some of what will come with me, or you don't. And the moment I feel like you don't, I'm out. Like, I'm not subjecting myself to going through some of the same sort of pointless exercises that I went through at ESPN. And so, with whatever I choose to do, this has got to be a full-on collaboration where you understand the assignment. Jamel Hill is a national treasure, one of the great sports broadcasters of our time. She's got a brand new book, a memoir called Uphill, where she talks about her youth in poverty in Detroit, and she goes all through everything that happened at Sports Center, that whole crazy story. I've been waiting to get into that with her. So let's go. It's the one and only Jamel Hill on Torre Show. 
The six o'clock sports center is tricky, right? Because we've been already consumed the highlights and and it's rare that news is going to break around six o'clock, right? Like Steve, Steve Nash got fired at four o'clock, right? Like we've done chewed that up already for a couple of, and it's ahead of the games. That, so just the whole, it seems like it's a perfect fit for a lot of personality to come in the mix but it seemed like from the beginning, the higher ups were like, we're not sure if we want all this personality, even though we gave them the job. Uh, and I'm glad you you understand that part of it is like six, the 6 p.m. Sports Center is very tricky because of what you said. Games haven't been played. You have an entire group of people who have already been consuming all the biggest sports news all day. Some of those same people have even been watching shows leading into our shows where they've been discussing and hammering home these same topics all day. But you do still have a lot of people who are not exactly abreast of what's going on out there. Like everybody is not on their phones all day or does not have jobs that do that. So you're trying to satisfy a couple different types of audiences. And that could be hard when you don't really have any fresh games to show them. So we were aware of those challenges, and we also were aware that one of one of the things they wanted us to do coming in is that they wanted the audience to be much blacker than it had been, and they wanted, they wanted um, that. yes, they did. Like that was the the two main directives that they really wanted us to help them fix, so to speak. They wanted a more diverse audience, i.e., a blacker audience, because us. When we were his and hers, us and First Take probably had the two blackest audiences at the network. So they wanted our audience, and they also wanted it to be younger because we also had a younger, much younger audience than the six than had been watching the six p.m. Sports Center. And you know, really, what happened is early on, I think they were okay with our blackness, but we also had a different leadership around the show. Then, what changed the dynamic was when that leadership changed. And that happened five or six months down the line. The creative issues we were having early on is where to figure out where Sports Center starts and where his and hers begins, or where his and hers ends and Sports Center starts. Um, we didn't know what we were, and we were not given a lot of time to figure that out because we went from our last show on his and hers being in December of uh, 2016 to our first show for the new sports center being in February, the day after the Super Bowl. And just for further context, they gave Scott Van Pelt more than six months to figure out his sports center. Really? Oh yeah. They gave him, I mean, I feel like it was almost a year. They gave Greedy the same amount of runway. We had two months and we didn't even have our whole production staff filled out. And I think we may have rehearsed four or five times and that's it. And they were just like, get on air, come on after the, the Super Bowl. And that was kind of that. So all of the growing pains we had to figure out before a national audience on television at 6 p.m. And it wasn't about like necessarily make make a mistake. I mean, it wasn't necessarily about making mistakes or anything like that that we were doing in that slot. What it was about was that you need to grow into the show you're going to be. Anybody who started a new TV show will tell you the show you are on day one is not the show you are a year later. You find your footing. Yeah. Right. Um, you said you well, you, you seem to feel like you were doomed from the beginning. And you said it was the job you hated most at ESPN. And like, 
it's, I mean, it seems like on the air, you had your partner, you guys were great. You were doing your thing. Everything else though was like, this is hell. Yeah. Everything else was more, the better description would be shit show. Is that you're, um, yeah, I mean, as it is just doing TV and the sports center format and with all the things that sometimes go right and wrong in the show, it always feels like you're in the middle of a giant clusterfuck. So that's just kind of how it is. However, outside of that, because we were having these creative issues about figuring out what the show was and oh, by the way, at the same time, getting regularly banged on by right wing media about our show being too liberal and, you know, too Basically, that's what they wanted to say is that it's too black and our show is getting crushed and uh, we just didn't have the runway that we should have to create the show. And once we got the show going. And so just what we thought we might have gotten a little, you know, bit better, gotten into a groove. Then they decided to make what to me was the change that led to me leaving the show. It had nothing to do with them. Um, with them, it had nothing to do with the Donald Trump incident. It had everything to do with the fact that they put a guy in charge named Norby Williamson in charge of our show. And his sort of second in command was a a guy named Dave Roberts. And Norby has a very notorious history at ESPN. He was one of the main detractors of Stuart Scott. Um, he very much likes traditional sports center. We did not want to do traditional sports center. And when we accepted the job, we told them we do not want to do traditional sports center. And that seemed to be the agreement at the beginning. By the time we're halfway through that first year, well, we were then the mobile quarterbacks who inherited the coach and GM that wanted only drop back passers. <laughs> <laughs> Look, when you guys were doing his and hers and Sports Center, I was at MSNBC and we and I got a lot of right wing hate. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it bothered me. I think we understood it as part of the Hatfield McCoy nature of the whole sort of thing. And like, of course the right is going to be firing at liberal uh, anchors, but you guys, that was completely uh, uh, not anything that sports center folks expected to get this. Did it bother you that the right was using you as this, you know, whatever your pinata, attack boogie ma- boogie man boogie woman whatever like did it bother you oh absolutely it bothered us because we thought it was so unfair i mean one of the early criticisms was that our show wasn't about sports which was a lie it was always about sports um and then they just started to nitpick and really it was part of a larger polarization happening at espn because espn was very much in the crosshairs and it was it was really strange just in the sense that ESPN has never tried to be political ever. But this was, I think maybe a, a year or so after they had given Caitlyn Jenner. And this is the irony to me of all ironies. Caitlyn Jenner is given the Arthur Ashe courage award. It causes a huge stir. And, you know, Arthur Ashe obviously had a very real legacy and was one of the most important sports figures of our time. But the award show of the ESPYs was literally created to fill airtime in the summer. That's why it was created. This is not the Academy Awards. This is not, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's a company that made up an awards show to fill programming. 
at the yeah. root of it, right? And that's yeah. no disrespect to people who win ESPYs, but that's what it was supposed to be. Yeah. And the seriousness in which people were taking that, and of course, that drew out all the familiar right-wing faces and pundits who accused ESPN of being, I mean, of being like liberal. I mean, they would you would have acted as if that, you know, when you turned on the ESPN, given the reaction to that, that I was on air burning my bra. Like, that's what you would have thought. Like, the way they were reacting. <laughs> and, and kneeling and fist Yeah. Tommy Smith. The scary part is, though, if that happens now, like, I don't even imagine what they might be doing. They might be trying to get ESPN banned off the network, accusing them of trying to groom their kids. It's like, you know, as crazy as it was then, it would be worse now. The irony, though, is that Caitlyn Jenner is basically a right winger herself. And that's yeah. why I was like, so they yeah. had all these problems and maybe then they didn't know that. So they didn't know they was literally chastising and, and, and beating down one of their own. Like they had no idea. Yeah. But nevertheless, that started this entire narrative around ESPN. And this was also in conjunction at a time where the faces of the network started to change. You had me and Mike with our own show. You had Bomani with his own show. You had Dan Lebatar, Stephen A. Smith, Sarah Spain, Kate Fagan, like it started to be more inclusive faces. And we know how much the right wing loves inclusive faces. And so it felt like we were just being called political because we were black and we were on air. Like, nothing based off really what we said. It was just, oh, and you know how that's how sometimes it is. If you're black and then sometimes in, in white spaces, they take your just very presence as a political act. Mm-hmm. And that's how they seem to be looking at us. Of course, you know, me, Mike and I on his and hers that have very serious conversations about Philando Castile and police brutality and Colin Kaepernick. But these are sports issues because the athletes that we talk about all the time, we're talking about and discussing these issues. We also had a president that none of the athletes wanted to be near with the exception of maybe Tom Brady. Like nobody wanted to be near. Okay. (laughs) So that was, you know, also a part of it. And, um, you know, because they had seen pictures of me and Mike at the White House with Obama, there was like an assumption, you know, I'm not saying it was the wrong assumption, but the way they created this narrative around our show that we were these two progressive, super liberal black people who got this TV spot. And all we were doing is talking about affirmative action, immigration reform, and all these issues every night on Sports Center, And that never happened. But we could never get from up under all of the negative and, um, you know, misaligned tropes that people said about our show. And it really hurt us. And that's why the criticism bothered me is because people at the network started to take it seriously and they started to make decisions about our show based on it. I mean, for guys like you, for, uh, for me, I mean, like if we're talking about sports, especially in that period, um, but in any period is sports, inherent is inherently political especially for black americans right and we can't talk about ash ali kaepernick so many people without talking about it. and it always comes up right the coach who is suing the nfl you're not letting me in you know the black woman who's like the usta wouldn't let me play because i'm black and i'm not the normal size it's constantly coming up so to act like we're going to talk about sports and never talk about politics, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it's all about, as you know, the type of politics that we're talking about. And I don't even like to refer to it as politics because when you're talking about access, inclusion, equity, these are very 
um, compelling and and righteous issues in sports. Like that is not politics to me. Politics is oh, are we debating, you know, um, whether or, or not this particular um, political legislation should pass or not pass, or what are the benefits? Are we voting on this proposal, that proposal? Those are politics. Uh, what we were discussing really is the right to dignity, humanity, and access, and that was it. And that is kind of, um, it, you know, let's be very clear about this. They're given what the hierarchy is in a lot of sports, in the sense that you have white owners, white fans, black labor. That when the labor starts to get a little too powerful, speak a little too loud remind you that they are not just here for your entertainment, then we run into all sorts of problems. And it is our responsibility as people in charge of chronicling what this means to speak about these issues because they're important sports topics. We're going to get to the games. You will figure out who will win the AFC East. That's fine. But we also have to make room for this other dialogue that, as you said, is equally important. Black sports fans maybe not 100%, but most are comfortable with these topics being intersected and discussed. And another issue is that in the minds of some people at ESPN, only a certain type of, of, of sports fan mattered. Only a certain type of sports fan should be catered to and heard. And that is what I found to be really problematic throughout our experience. They kept listening to those loud and wrong and letting them lead the conversation, as opposed to not thinking about the fact that there's just as many people who appreciate that we're talking about certain topics in this context. Part of why you guys are so refreshing and necessary for me is I've always noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed this too, this schism that we see in a lot of sports media, where it's generally short white men who probably didn't even have success in high school with sports or girls um, talking about physically gifted black men who probably were always successful in sports and with women. And there's this sort of disdain because the, the writers are like, we're smarter than you, but you have more money. You have more success. You're ticking off all the boxes that we wish we could tick off. So we're going to have this, this way of like looking down, right? You, you know what I'm talking about? They're, they're sort of like looking down on the athletes. And I'm like, I hate that whole thing. I would say in general that, uh, and I, I think this has a great deal to do with why you see now so many athletes who have their own media platforms. That's why LeBron James created Uninterrupted. It's why you now have the Players' Tribune and Dr Draymond Green doing his own podcast and J.J. Redick has a podcast and all these players yeah, who fun. want to, yeah, who want to find their voices and who want to be a voice. And the media's failings is a, a huge engineering force behind that. The majority of my career in sports media has been overwhelmingly white and male. Like 80 to 90 percent of the jobs in sports media are held by white men. And with that comes seeing athletes through a certain lens. And often that lens is not respective of culture. It is not respective of history and does not understand optics, racial dynamics, gender dynamics, those sorts of things. And when 
the uh, athletes get tired or they've gotten tired of being dehumanized. So you have Naomi Osaka deciding she don't want to do press conferences, okay? And being fed up. And Simone Biles telling you, I don't owe you anything, <laughs> all right? We see guys, Westbrook, other guys get frustrated. Like, I'm sick of you guys with these stupid questions. And, like, I feel for them. It's And it's, you know, it's some of it is the lack of dignity in which they feel like they haven't been covered properly. And listen, don't get me wrong. I want to make room for the fact that there are plenty of athletes who are covered quite accurately, just don't like what's being said. Okay. <laughs> All right. There's that too, for sure. But I do think the lack of diversity in sports media makes it that much more difficult for the athletes to trust that these opinions are and um, framing and narratives are coming from people who do not understand them. Like they just don't trust that they actually understand them because they look out and they don't see anybody that actually looks like them. So, you know, I think that's a problem with how sports are framed and how and why certain very obvious racial disparities have gone completely unchecked and no one's asking more questions about these things and why owners have been allowed to sort of sit in their Wizard of Oz tower and the people taking all of the criticism and the hits are the players and they become the enemy to the people in many cases even when it's the people and the players that have way more in common than people do with owners. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. 
Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. You know, I love the prevalence of athletes on television and in podcasting talking about their sports. And I think for the most part, it's great. And Draymond is a fantastic addition to that whole group. It bothers me when he says this is new media because I'm like, okay, brother, you're doing a great job, but you're not doing anything new. You're not breaking ground. And we've been seeing athletes. I think it's more, but we've been seeing athletes on television talking about their sport for decades. I don't think that he's doing media in a different way because he is an insider. I think he's he's doing it well. But like when he says this is new, then I start to like my my right, my shoulders start to I'm like, no, 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 it's it's good, but it's not new. So stop calling it new. <laughs> Do something different. Like, what do you think about that? I, I I love the fact that Draymond has embraced having a platform and he's like the perfect person to do it. Uh I also my my issue is not necessarily with it being called new media. I understand why he says that to some degree. I mean, because and the only reason I think, and not that this is particularly new, but I think for this age of media that we're in, it, it wasn't really a blueprint for it. But I think athletes owning their own stories, and for that matter, coming after the media that comes after them. You know, we we I would see it in like the locker room or something like that. You would see it on a smaller scale, but nobody. You know, you're not used to athletes having a consistent platform where every week he's like, let me go in on this person that said this about me and like, explain why they're wrong or explain why this narrative is wrong. They just usually didn't have the consistent mouthpiece. So that part of it is a little new. But here's where I would compare what Draymond is doing and other athletes to what Noriega is doing on Trick Champs. I think these are both great platforms where you have people who have been the subject matter now are in a position to be the interviewers, but that doesn't make you a journalist. Right. doesn't make you a journalist. And that's where, and I do feel, and Draymond hasn't said this, so I, I'm not going to attach this to him, but I do feel like there's too many athletes, much like, again, Noriega called himself a journalist, love Noriega, have met him like sweet dude, you're not a journalist. And I'm not saying that because I have a journalism degree and you don't, it's just not a degree thing. That understand, as you know, as a journalist, is that part of our jobs and responsibilities is to hold people in power accountable, is to hold, um, is to ask tough questions, is to dig at the truth. All of these things are part of the functioning core of journalism. And sometimes, a lot of times, those guys don't really do that. Noriega said his platform was to give artists their flowers. It is not our jobs to give you your flowers. It is our job to put what you're doing in context, to explain it, 
to corroborate it. Not our job to be your publicist. And I think that's the part that is very different between the function of what some athletes and entertainers do in a media space versus what we do in a media space. I mean, they, they, and I don't want to harp on this too long. They, they can and do ask questions that we may not think of because we haven't been in the locker Very room true. Right before again. Very true. But I don't mm-hmm. know what it's like when Doc Rivers calls me into his office after I went two for 15 and what he's going to say, right? So, you, you know, you have a perspective that we could not have. However, yes, there is a lack of accountability. But now I want to go back to the six. Behind the scenes, it was tough. But on the air with Mike, right? It, 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 I mean, like, he, I don't, I, I may have had one partner as great as what you guys seemed like. I mean, like, was it just like, this is just peanut butter and jelly. Like, I just flow with this, with this co-anchor with this man and it just works for us. I think we saw ourselves as kind of the, you know, new version of, of Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you were thinking about some of the great pairs in, you know, ESPN's history where you had Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless, you have Mike Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser, um, you know, you have Dan Patrick and Keith Oberman. Like there's been a lot of great pairs and we considered ourselves kind of among the great pairs that have been at ESPN. But it was more unique because you had a black woman and a black man who relatively in the same age group. Uh, who came up through journalism the same way. Both of us, former newspaper reporters, our journalism integrity meant a lot. And I was in a position of being one of the few women at the time who was actually driving the show with her opinion, as opposed to teeing up a question for other guys to answer as the expert. I was the expert. (laughs) It was my opinion that mattered. Much like it is the same with Mike. And I think because we had so many relatable um, career similarities and and, par- uh, and parallels. You know, he's from New Orleans. I'm from Detroit. I mean, we, we had a lot of things in common. And we were friends first before the partnership happened on television. Like, we were legitimate, cool-ass friends. And we, you know, we had a mutual respect for each other. I never had to worry about Mike trying to go out of his way to make me look stupid on TV or go out of his way to be, um, you know, extra combat. Yes. I trusted him extra combative. We trusted each other that, yeah, we'll poke fun at each other. We'll roast each other, but we didn't come to television. We didn't come, uh, you know, to every show thinking, how can I best the other person? It wasn't competitive like that. Like if Mike was cooking on a topic and needed 10 straight minutes to talk, I was like, go ahead, bro. You got it. Right. Yeah, and if he and if he dropped the mic, it's like, all right, let's move on. I'll have to get my say on. And I as we were, you know, kind of really finding ourselves as a television partnership, it's one of the distinctions that we wanted to make between ourselves and first take. First take by design is com- combative TV. Like you're supposed to come on there going at folks' neck about their opinion. That's the nature of the show. That was not the nature of our show. No, it was it was not. I mean, the other pairings, except for you said Oberman and Patrick, I think, because they're doing tr- traditional sports center. The other pairings you talk about right. Stephen A. and Skip, and who was the other one you said? Other um, Mike and Tony. Mike and Tony, like those pairings. There's a natural. There is a combativeness. They are supposed to fight. 
I, at that point, I like Stephen A. I hated Skip, right? Like I like <laughs> Greeny, Tone. The other one was like, ah, I don't know about him, right? Like we liked both of you, right? And it was no need to be like, I prefer one to the other. They are brother and sister. And like, you know, it, it and, and they flow and they are equal, like true equals. And like, I, I like that. There was a symbiosis. There was a partnership. There was a brother or sisterhood. And like, I don't you know, I don't have to choose one. And you could debate and disagree in a passionate but respectful way that nobody's pulling punches and yet nobody is hated. We're not losing. I, I was like, oh, I want I want a TV sister like that. So well, we also I think one thing we perfected was the art of dis of the art of disagreeing differently. Like we could both disagree about a topic. Um, or I should say we could both have the same, um, you know, kind of stance on the topic, but we knew how to disagree differently. Right. It's like, OK, we both agree, you know, uh, like, you know, right now as we're recording this, the Lakers aren't very good. OK, we both agree the Lakers aren't very good. But the reason I think they're not very good is because of Anthony Davis. And he might be like, no, no, the reason they aren't very good is because of Russell Westbrook. So we both have a general agreement. But within that, we learned how to agree differently. And so there's an art to that. And I do think that, you know, again, having that respect is, is important, that trust. Um, and, you know, it was very much like, um, uh, you know, Showtime Lakers and that, you know, you just know where the other person is going to be to get the ball in the best spot. And we kind of understood these nuances about uh, one another. And it, it's what it's what made the the show special. I mean, we could come in and look at a bunch of topics and I could say like, oh, I know Mike is about to cook on that. And he could say the same for me. And, you know, that's how we would help to build, you know, what we hoped would be the most entertaining show. So that whole period was so fraught politically. It was like, eventually we were going to run into the ditch one way or another because we all were like, feeling i'm like like uh, my show at msnbc ended as the primaries were still going and i'm like if we had gone into the general election as because tr- we were treating trump like a joke when we got off the air right but if, if i would have lost it on the air on one of these sycophants coming on trying to gaslight and filibuster and lie about trump and like i would like i don't know how joy reed kept it together uh I sure I'm sure that I tweeted the same shit that you did. Right. And there's a lot of us who said the same shit that you did, maybe even use the same white supremacist phrase. (laughs) Why did it blow up for you to call him a white supremacist when a lot of us were saying the exact same thing? It's why I wrote in my memoir that it's the most unoriginal thing I've ever said. That it's not even particularly dynamic. It's just like, oh, I just was calling a thing a thing. Like, that's all I was doing. I thought everybody kind of knew that. Oh, you didn't? All right, I got you. Um, so I, I think it was the who and the where. The who being a Black woman sports anchor. The where being ESPN. Like, people, you being at MSNBC is obviously what people consider to be the home of political opinions. Like, you are supposed to have a political opinion if you're on MSNBC. If you are on SportsCenter at ESPN, you are not. And even though what I tweeted about Trump was not said on the air, as far as the populace was concerned, I might as well have been on SportsCenter saying it. Yeah, it yeah. didn't matter. 
Like I might as well have said it right. Show started at six. I might as well have said it at six oh one. Right. <laughs> that's that's the way they kind of looked at it. And I think a lot of times if you're a black woman and you have a confident and forceful opinion, like you're just going to incite all the wolves. But I think the dynamic, the unique dynamic of me being at ESPN and having that kind of opinion was very surprising to some people. And, um, you know, those who were in that whole stick to sports bubble, like just lost their minds. And never did I imagine in all of that, that this would ever become such a snowball issue that suddenly former press secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders would be calling for me to be fired at a White House press briefing. Never thought it would get there. And then you had Trump talking about you. I mean, like, yeah, (laughs) I know. I know. I mean, like, look to, uh, you know, quote the commercial life comes at you fast because the year before I was in the, the White House with Mike, with, um, you know, my husband, Ian, he was then my boyfriend with Mike's um, wife, Sarah, and we were drinking Hennessy at the White House literally almost the year before. Okay. So I go from drinking Hennessy at the White House to a president telling me as in former President Obama that Mike and I had his favorite morning show and Michelle Obama telling me how she loves seeing me hold my own in the company of male broadcasters and and athletes to the president despising me and saying I'm the reason uh the next president despising me and saying that I'm the reason that ESPN's rating ranking uh ratings are in the tank. So Life comes at you fast. Yes, <laughs> it sure does. So, so you talk a lot about what happened behind the scenes out of that moment. And you talk a lot about this sort of epic pair of meetings with John Skipper, who was then running ESPN, who you thought you had a great relationship with. And he seems deeply torn like, I'm angry with you, right? He says, like, a lot of my friends voted for him. Do you think that they're racist? I would have been like, yes, John, I do. <laughs> but, you know, you're like, it, it, see, it, the moment was a lot for you, right? You're a professional communicator. Like, I don't really fully know how to, what to say here. He felt like he couldn't suspend you because clearly there was a community that was standing behind you and he doesn't want to look racist. Um, and then you kind of get suspended, but not really, but then you kind of get called back into the, like, tell me about like how that was. Cause I've been called into the principal's office before and it was a little different, but kind of similar. Well, it's the first time in my professional career I've ever been asked to, to go home, to be sent home. That <laughs> somebody's ever told me to go home. And I was like, what? I mean, that didn't, that didn't even happen to me in high school and grade school. Like never happened. And, you know, the one thing about Skipper is that, um, and we, and we, by the way, we have a great relationship and we're still friends and I work, I work with him now actually. Um, but that was, that was a rocky period for us because Skipper up until that point had been very supportive of our career. It was partially his idea to put us on SportsCenter to begin with. He was invested in seeing this, seeing this work, but, you know, I think, when ESPN with him being under so much pressure, this is not to give him an excuse. I'm just explaining the whole dynamic. He was under a lot of pressure because, you know, ESPN was, as I said before, they were being uh, put in a lot of right wing crosshairs. And that is not 
the ESPN is always used to being the cool kids at the table. They are not used to being polarizing. So this was very new terrain. They have a relationship with the NFL at that moment that could use some work. They could go to care. They, they definitely could have gone to couples therapy. All right. For sure. And you know, the, the bottom line is that now you have one of your most visible talents that just called the, the, the president of the United States a white supremacist. And he was torn because, as you said, there was people he knew that would have loved to see me on a spittle. But there was also this community and not just any community um, beyond just regular black folks. There was a black athlete community that was strongly behind me. LeBron, Colin Kaepernick, Kevin Durant, Dwayne Wade, like big names that vocally came out in support of me. And these are the same athletes you want to do business with that you want to be in their good graces so they will do things for the network. So, yeah, he was caught in an awkward spot. And when he asked me that question, he didn't say his friends. And I, I, I made the point of saying this in the book. The one thing Skipper never said to me, and I never, you know, followed up. He never said I was wrong. What he said was, is did you have to tweet that? <laughs> okay. And, but was, uh, he, was he a Trumper? No, not at all. Okay, and, and you know I don't I don't mean to to um you know a reveal or you know kind of talk out of school about somebody's polit- political beliefs. So I would just say there is nothing that ever indicated to me that John Skipper supported Donald Trump. Okay, and um and I felt like I got to know him him pretty well. And the question he asked me is that well, did I feel like my colleagues and coworkers who voted for Donald Trump were racist. What was going to through my mind was kind of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Because even if they don't feel like they directly are racist, they're okay with it. It's they're not okay. a deal breaker. Right. It's, it's, it's not a deal breaker. I mean, the, the it's race. It's not a turnoff. <laughs> for white people, a lot of times that word racism means, do you think I hate every single black person I interact with? No, I don't think you're Archie Bunker, but you are benefiting from white privilege and you're comfortable with that. And you're not fighting against that when a clear white supremacist like Donald Trump shows up. And you're also comfortable with him attacking marginalized groups and and vulnerable communities because you benefit from those attacks. And, you know, so it's 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 sort of six in one hand, half dozen in the other. And. You know, I didn't really know how to answer that question. I just, and this is where my crying fit started, is that I just was trying to explain to him that you don't understand in this moment what it means and what it's like to be a Black woman, a Black person in America, where as much and as often as we have been disappointed by this country, as we have been left hanging out the dry, as we have been marginalized, dehumanized, we have a long history that supports all of this. This is one of my moments of my lifetime where I'm just like, who the fuck is in this country and who am I going to work with every day? Mm. Everybody seemed like an op after that. It's like, wait a minute, Donald Trump won? Somebody lying, okay? <laughs> right? Somebody lying I don't over know here. Donald Trump supporters, so who voted? Did you? Did you? Did you? Right, because all of a sudden, we we're having this unsafe feeling wherever you were, you know, black in America, that the people who've been smiling in your face and kikiing with you at work and 
you know, asking you for recipes at, in the, in the uh, employee kitchen, you like, Oh, these are some operatives. Like I have been surrounded and I don't even know it. <laughs> you're in Brooklyn, right? I think if you're on the East side of Detroit or whatever, you're like, well, we safe here, right? This is blue here, right? The day after the election, um, we were in this little, little French kind of bistro in Brooklyn. And my son says again, you told me there was no chance that Donald Trump was going to win. And I'm like, I know I'm very surprised. I don't think there's any Trump people like around here in Brooklyn, but there's clearly a lot more than I thought in other. And the old, the older gentleman at the table next to me with his wife is kind of like perking up. And like, he's like, kind of like leaning into our conversation and kind of look at him. Like, why are you like getting, you know, in my, and he's like, we voted for Trump. And I was like, so furious. Cause I'm like, like you said, like, I thought you were a normal person because you're in Brooklyn, but no, you're a freaking, freaking Trumper. And I was like, I, we were done. Right. Like the bill had just been paid, but we were lingering. I was like, honey, let's go. Cause if I start to give this man a piece of my mind, it's going to turn into a whole other afternoon for all of us. So like, let, let's just leave right. But yeah, it was like, I mean, it was, it was it was a feeling of it feels weird again being black in America saying this, but it was definitely a sense of betrayal. Yes. Like, oh, and maybe it's because it was more along the lines of throwing a rock and hiding your hand. Like we're used to just seeing the rock, and okay, the rock's coming. We know. All right, we got it. But this one was just so much more duplicitous. Where in the you know, I, I had still had a house in Florida at that time, and when I was going back and forth and like, I never saw Trump signs anywhere. And this is Florida. And I was like, I didn't see him. And then suddenly right before the election, they are everywhere. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like I've been, I've been in the trenches and I didn't even know it. <laughs> and bamboozled. So wait, so you get suspended two weeks and you say it was never the same. My heart wasn't really in the show the same way. And you still have, what, a good two and a half years left on the three. deal? Three full three. years? Three, three. We, I was in the first year. Our contracts didn't start till February of 2017, and it was a four-year deal. Oh, <laughs> you had three more years, and yet you're going, I don't, I, like, I love Mike, but I don't love this anymore. Yeah, and Mike, because uh, he and I, um, of course, as this was going on, we were talking, you know, all the time. And I even, uh, you know, the roughest part of it, or one of the roughest parts, I should say, was the fact that it it had an impact on his career that obviously I had not intended. And that, that could be, I guess you could say, the downside of a partnership, one that was fused together the way ours was, is that we didn't come in as super, two separate individuals like that. Like, we were we were a package deal. So if one part of the package isn't there, then the it's not the it's not the same, and it's not going to function, you know, the same. And by that point, you know, once ESPN after uh, Donald Trump decided to publicly attack me and they didn't respond, I knew the relationship was over then. It was done because, you know, kind of a, a principle I've been raised on as a journalist is that when the government, especially a government official, especially a, pol a politician, somebody in authority, when they come after your journalists, you stand by your journalists. That's what you do. And they didn't do that. They were silent. And it was, it was the word I'll use. It's a naive word to use because I know 
even at that point in my career, I know how corporations operate. I've been through maybe nothing like this, but I certainly knew that it was always a conditional relationship. But that was heartbreaking for me because of the fact I'd been there 12 years, because of my close relationship with Skipper, that it felt like something where our relationship was never going to recover. And I know at that point, uh, they wouldn't say it, that they probably preferred me to not be on SportsCenter because every time I, I, you know, I took a breath, Breitbart was writing about it. And they, the, the, the whole toxic element around the show, around the, the energy I was bringing to it, um, not my own personal energy, but just it suddenly being this polarizing show and it wasn't meant to be that, um, you know, it, it just wasn't enjoyable on top of the fact that there's been this massive creative change in our show where at that point, you know, right before Trump and certainly after they were definitely trying to get rid of all the blackness out the show. <laughs> OK, right. like that was a very determined plan. So I'm like, I can't come to work and be myself. I'm fighting every day over this show that, frankly, has never been what I wanted to, it to be or never been what we wanted it to be. What am I doing this for? Um, you know, I, I, and so finally, because I knew it would be mutually advantageous, I went to them and I asked to be let out of Sports Center and I realized. Surprised. I was surprised to learn that you had motivated the mm-hmm. end. You said, I'm done with this. I will, I will let you out of the guarantee of me hosting this for three more years. Yeah, I had the equivalent of a no trade clause that an athlete has. I had to waive it to leave, you know? And uh, yeah, because it it wasn't, the job wasn't fun. The show was not under that leadership was not going to be what we both had envisioned. I I didn't want to come to work every day feeling like I was ramming my head into a brick wall. Not fun. So I said, you know what? I'd rather go back to doing something I love, which is always writing. So I asked to be let out of sports center and even though I was getting a salary that reflected being on Sports Center, um, one, I wasn't going to take a salary cut. That wasn't happening. Um, and that wasn't even on the table. <laughs> and even though, as they, were, they told me, right, they told me that they typically don't have people making the kind of money I was making in the role that I wanted to assume after Sports Center, they okayed it because deep down they knew this was mutually beneficial for us both. And my entire exit out of ESPN. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Thrivemarket.com 
slash Toray. Introducing Batiste's wet-activated and touch-activated dry shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste dry shampoo online or in store at your nearest retailer. It was very similar. Is they, they proposed some other possibilities of me doing some things at ESPN. They both sounded like things that I had done before. One show they suggested that I joined, they wound up canceling, which I was like, oh, that's the last thing I needed was to be part of a canceled show. And it just felt like the relationship had run its course and that it was time. I just was the one who said I wanted to break up first because I think they felt like they weren't in the position to really say that. I was shocked to see the conversation about the one down comment. And it seemed like the executives, some of the executives were like, yes, we finally got one of them out. Now we have to work on the other one. I'm like, how how could this be stated publicly? How could this ever get back to you? Like, what is that about? I mean, we had a lot of people on our show staff that was very loyal to us. And when they had conversations um, with the particular executive you're talking about, I mean, they told me point blank. Multiple people told me point blank. That's what he said. And one of the things, um, and it wasn't surprising. I mean, of course, it was disappointing, but it wasn't surprising. But we felt that energy from them from the beginning. You know, when when they took over the show, we just didn't feel like if they had if they had their mind, if they had been with the process from the beginning, they never would have had us in those seats. You know that we would we were not what they were looking for. We weren't what they wanted. And um, they were glad to when we left, you know, um, when I left and Mike was solo hosting the show, they made it clear to him they did not want a solo host. And so um, he was just kind of spinning his wheels for another month about it, which was really unfair. Yeah, I was also surprised, you know, like we said at the beginning, when you got the job, I and many people felt like it was a victory for the culture that you guys got this big, huge job at SportsCenter. And I, I felt and many others felt affirmed in that, like these authentically black, uh, amazing hosts were going from what was it, three o'clock? You guys were on at twelve o'clock, and then three o'clock, right? And then no, we were on twelve to one, and then Sports Center, we were on six to seven. Right? No, well, well, the well, numbers never lie. Was noon, right? And then you moved later in the afternoon, right? No, we were on at noon. Okay. And then but you ascended to like the six, right? So we felt like, wow, I did not feel like that it, that it ended for you. Like we were rejected in any way, like shit happened. That was beyond her control. And like, you know, jobs come, jobs go, but you do question within the text. Was it a failure or that others maybe thought of it as a failure do you look back on that year of television as a failure or like just just the the environment and the tide was beyond you guys? You know, I used to look at it as a failure because we didn't get to end it on our terms. And 
it was probably naive of me to think that we would because it's television, you know, to make a sports analogy. It's not that many athletes that get to go out on top. Usually the game retires them and not the other way around. And television can kind of be the same way. We all have an expiration date. And I just felt like we would have been or should have been or were deserving of being more in control with how we chose to finish our partnership or leave the show or or whatever was our destiny supposed to be. But when I think about it more holistically and more from a 64,000 foot view, it's not a lot of people that turned a podcast into sports center. I mean, that's what it was. You know, we flipped that all the way to the highest level. And for that, I'll be proud of it. And especially considering the way we did it too, being ourselves. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't look at it like it didn't work out for them. I look at it like you guys got an amazing job. You did it authentically. You did it in a black way. You made us proud, you know, and there was other bullshit that that came with that. Because you had the super, when you get a super high profile job, you're going to be under a microscope. But it wasn't that, you know, you guys didn't do the right things. Like we still, if you guys reunited right now for a show, uh, we'd be like, great, love it. Let's do it. Let's watch it. Let's listen to it, whatever it is. And both of you in your own ways have ascended higher in the wake of that opportunity to bigger things. Yeah, I I think um, we found who we were together in terms of like we knew what we were capable of as a pair and we really maximized that. And now that we have, you know, split off and I guess maybe a little like outcast, though neither one of us are walking around playing a flute, (laughs) you know, like my man three stacks. (laughs) But we're but we're we're happy in, in what we have found. And I think what matters to me more in this season of my career is the fact that I have so much more autonomy, freedom, um, and of the many great lessons that I learned from everything that happened on SportsCenter and really everything at ESPN, period, is that I will never put myself in that position again. Um, in what position? So it, I will not enter into a situation where I can't fully be who I am. And I have, you know, like, I don't mind. I've I've since had, you know, a couple network shows since then, but I think that there has been in network TV, this expectation that you should change or you should be different. What you see is what you're going to get. And I'm not changing it. And even with the, the very short, live stint that I did uh, at at CNN Plus, they understood exactly who I was coming through the door and knew that's the person I was going to be. And you either have the stomach to deal with some of what will come with me or you don't. And the moment I feel like you don't, I'm out. Like I'm not subjecting myself to going through some of the same sort of pointless exercises that I went through at ESPN. And so with whatever I choose to do, this has got to be a full-on collaboration where you understand the assignment going in. And I know a lot of people tell you that, but I guess I'm in a different position now because every job I have is a job I want and not a job I need. So that automatically puts me in a much different mindset. 
That's amazing. Coming from, what, I mean, would you call your youth poverty? Yeah, I would definitely call it that. I mean, my mother never made $18,000 a year and we were on and off, you know, welfare. And, you know, I, I would certainly not put myself in the class of people where, you know, the lights were cut off or we didn't have any heat or we didn't have any food. I was, my basic needs were definitely taken care of. Didn't have a lot of extra to do some things. You know, my mom definitely had to cut some corners here and there, but, you know, it was one of those things where you were poor, but you didn't know what you were missing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so to come from the background that I've come from, to go to Sports Center and now beyond, it's, you know, how could this life not be a win for me? You know that, um, you look, you, do you watch, do you look at TikTok? Yeah, I do. I'm a, I'm a lurker, not a poster. No, I'm a lurker and not a poster also. <laughs> and you know that meme where it's like, like when they are taking off on like the end of black movies, right? And like, she's, she says, I'll be right back. And then it paused, like, she was not right back. It was six hours. She got drunk and she fell asleep. With it. And, and I look at that with you in terms of, in his and hers, there was this shadowy third character. What did you, you refer to him as, a, what, what did you refer to your boyfriend as on his and hers? Oh, oh uh, yeah. When he was my boyfriend. Oh, oh boy. boy. Yes. Oh boy. Oh, boy. Right? And oh boy. <laughs> we get mentioned, but never specifically. It just, she has a boyfriend. We don't know anything about him, but like he is this third character that is a kid. And in the wake of the six, you got married. You put it all over Instagram. We know who he is. He's a real person. And it's like nice, like that part of your life has sort of come into the light. You had a gorgeous wedding. You guys are living the life now. And after that, like it's that that's been sort of an exciting development uh, that we've <laughs> that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels a little bit like how, you know, when there's a series finale, <laughs> right? And then you're like, oh, well. Oh boy, became Mr. Husband and all, you know, all, you know, all of this stuff. So yes, I, I understand that. <laughs> we, bear, we, we, we don't remember. There was once a time when Jay-Z would not talk about Beyonce. And if you asked him, he would freeze up and give you the ice grill. You, you know, we don't talk about that. And now it's all Mr. Carter and all that sort of Mrs. No, Mrs. Carter. So wait, so you are executive producing the Kaepernick documentary, which uh, with Spike Lee, which I am so proud to be one of the voices. I say you're in it. Yeah. Oh God. I've been like, it was so great. Um, but can you tell us something about Kaepernick that we will learn in this that we did not previously know? Well, I think you probably knew a little bit about this just based off the nature of the protests that he's done. But I think what most people will be surprised at is the depth of his integrity, like how far it goes. Like there's a lot of people who are able to do a gesture in a moment, but like that gesture is just the symbol for how he actually lives his life. You know what I'm saying? And so that's a little bit different. And I think people will be one, very happy to hear from him because it's been a long time since we we've actually heard from him. He never really talked. No, he didn't. You know, there's a lot of people, and I'm not saying it would have made them bad, who certainly would have propelled that moment into being more vocal in terms of like taking more, assuming a certain position, particularly as 
the struggle or the need for the struggle and the movement have only increased. But he never do, did that. He's an actions first guy. And so, so much of what he's done has aligned with who he is. And I think that's why I said that people would be surprised at the depth of his integrity. The other thing people would be surprised, let's see, what's the best way that I can tease this? People will be surprised to hear the full story of how he came to protest. Mm. Because there are some key differences in the story that has been told. And I think Mm. there'll be a lot of light shed on that. One of the things I talked about with Spike was that at the beginning of all this, Kaepernick was not the best verbal messenger for this. His physical integrity and his character as far as what he was doing with kneeling and and the protest shifted, right, because of some constructive criticism from a teammate, it's, it's, he, so he's clearly like listening, like, how can I do this more effectively? So it's very thoughtful. But I remember one or two of the early post-game beehives, he was not the best messenger. And I'm like, he doesn't have to be the best messenger. He doesn't have to be what Michael Eric Dyson or Mark Lamont Hill would be in that moment. But not being that compromised some of, some, uh, some people who are not, disposed to support him, it compromised their ability to understand and support him. I I would say that the people who maybe feel that way and who wanted him to be more like the examples that you gave, they're used to people, that being the graduation step in something like that. I, I think it was just because Colin was very unwilling to make it about himself, even though he did something that everybody in the world paid attention to. It wasn't because he was incapable. I think it was because he was it was he was unwilling. And this was a protest that was meant to be a singular act. It became something much greater and bigger. And I think even that um, that it caught him by surprise. And so um, because of that, I think, you know, people um, may have misunderstood his silence as somebody who was unwilling. I think in his mind and. Remember, this is closely tied to who he is an athlete. From as an athlete, most athletes are wired for action, not right. wired for doing okay. a lot of speaking. Yeah, right. and he's a very right. eloquent speaker in general, and that's why I think this is really going to be a wonderful. Um, this is really going to be something that's very powerful for people because you hear him speak. Like all, like he, he is all up and through this thing. Okay. This is his story very much. So, and I, I think his, him putting his words behind what you've already seen him do and then explaining what his life is like now. Um, I think that will be very powerful and compelling and listen to people who were very disingenuous about his hatred and villainizing this man. They already owe him apology an apology, but I think once this, is back in the forefront. They're really going to feel ashamed. And you already know how it is, is that whenever we go through this period where we have, um, where people react in the moment, it was the same thing with virtually any black athlete that was villainized at one point, only for us to come back a few years later and say, you know what? Maybe we had that one wrong. You think? So I think Mm. that will be a strong sentiment. 
One last thing, because um, the Sports Center part of this book is really fascinating, but you do take a while to get to that because your childhood obviously is really important and it's really difficult. Um, and you talk about some trauma, some surviving. There's a lot going on. Can you talk about how your, can we call it a difficult, relatively difficult childhood because of the environment, because of the money? Um, your mother was very young. She was a teenager, right? When, yeah, when she you was were born? 18. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, so how did that, your youth in Detroit shape the woman we have now? It shaped everything about me. And, you know, thinking about one of the questions I'm asked a lot about as it relates to the Trump tweets, where people are constantly asking me, how did you handle that? And how did you process what was happening? And, you know, was it hurtful and all of this other stuff? And I think the reason why I took it the way I did is because of how I grew up. You know, growing up that way with, you know, again, parents who have substance abuse issues, uh, with all this trauma and generational trauma around me, one thing it definitely teaches you is how to have perspective when you face obstacles and adversity down the road. Donald Trump would not rank in probably the top 50 of my worst moments in life. He just wouldn't. Really? I've seen so much worse. I've experienced so much worse. I tell this story in the book, you know, just to give you an example. I mean, my mother showed me crack when I was eight. I think that's worse than Donald Trump. Hmm. All right. My mother was suffering from a very severe case of PTSD that totally engineered her drug use that lasted pretty much most of my childhood. Seeing my mother not out on heroin, knowing that my father held me with one arm wrapped around me and a needle in the other. That's worse than Donald Trump. So Mm. excuse me if I don't get all riled up about what Donald Trump thought of me. And so I think coming from that upbringing, that's what it teaches you to do is that when you know what bottom looks like, all these other moments that people think are bottom, you're like, I'm still high above the clouds right now. Y'all have no idea. (laughs) This is nothing compared to that. And so because I've always kept that perspective, that even as I've gone through these different challenges in, in my career, it is what makes me built to withstand it the way that I am. Thank you so much to Jamel for a great interview and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. Maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre for now and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torrey Show is written by me, Torrey, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash 
all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.